I'm Evan, Stock Market News, the person uh, running the accounts. So that I'm not going to speak from there. Uh, I, I do just want to preface this a little bit with the purpose of this space. You know, there's a lot of spaces on Twitter and on FinTwit and everything. Obviously, they're on Twitter, on FinTwit uh, about trading and crypto and everything like that right now. But it felt like there was a void for long-term investors. You know, the, the average person out there probably is a long-term investor. Maybe FinTwit is a little bit different. But there is still a really, really strong community that, you know, we thought we would be able to help with these spaces and really get information out. For a long time, we've been doing deep dives into companies, uh, kind of using that as a way to be as educational as, as possible. Not necessarily, oh, here's a company, go out and buy it. But here's a company that I did my due diligence into. Here's what I looked for. Here's the numbers. Here's the, the terms I'm searching for. Here's the type of things I like in a company. So that's what we're really looking for, trying to be as educational as possible. We've kind of branched away into really whatever we can do to be educational, whether it's going through an earnings report, talking about how investors can capitalize on volatility or positioning sizing or whatever. Our goal with this space is really to make it relevant to talk about long-term investing every single week, every single Thursday at noon. Stock Talk Weekly should be in here in a little bit. We're joined by Brad every single week. And we're really lucky to be able to have Richard come in as a guest this week and share us some really, really fantastic information, which I'm very excited for. And I know all of you guys will get some really fantastic value from. So quickly, before we get into it and before I throw it over to Richard and let us hear what he has to say, I do just want to make sure uh, everyone up here, as the people speak, make sure you are checking them out, giving them a follow. The information we're going to get up here is really, really top class. We only brought some of the best long-term investors up here to share information with all of you. So just as they're speaking right now, whatever, make sure you're clicking into their profiles, giving them a follow, checking them out, liking their posts, doing whatever you got to do. But we're about to be getting some really great information in here and the stuff they post is going to be just that much better. So check out everybody. But with that, I would love it to throw, love to throw it over to Richard, a little bit of word jumble there and, and kind of get your thoughts on, on anything you wanted to talk about. If there was a, a company you wanted to do a deep dive in, any reportings or, or, you know, any just long-term investing concepts you really want to talk about? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, you know, like I post my portfolio every quarter and um, some of my talks talks I've uh, talked about in depth on Twitter, like, you know, go to racks and stuff. Um, so I think today's session, I'm going to talk more about um, kind of my idea of long-term investing. So, you know, I feel that long-term investor is something that everyone says they are, but I think it's actually pretty rare. Um, if you look at the average holding period for U.S. stocks, it's around like five and a half months um, compared to like, you know, around seven years back in like 1940s. Um, so I think, you know, like with the market these days, um, a lot of it is just driven by flows, algorithms. Um, you, you see in the media, like there's constant noise. Um, everyone's like either telling you to sell or telling you to buy based off of headlines. Um, and you can check the prices of your stock every second on your brokerage app. So there are very low um, barriers to trade than ever before. And I think, you know, like if I were to buy a basket of long-term stocks, um, it's a great idea to like, you know, just say I'm going to um, hold and like go to the beach for 10 years. But would, you know, like would, would I really do that much better if I did not touch it, right? Um, so I think, you know, over the long-term, um, very few things, very few things matter. So like a few underwhelming quarters for a company is not usually going to change my thesis. Um, sometimes there's going to be like new competitive announcements, like Mark Cuban just announced this, uh, cost plus pharmacy. Um, so like those stuff, they shouldn't change my thesis, right? Because I should have, uh, considered, you know, a company's moat and, um, that usually doesn't like a moat doesn't usually break in a quarter or two. Um, some short-term macro headwinds. Um, like the Fed raising interest rates, et cetera, like those should all be expected when you're prepared to invest in a company for like five to 10 years. Um, it's also inevitable that your investment is going to be down, you know, 50% or more from previous all-time highs, um, like probably multiple times over that same period. And what really separates successful investors is not only in their ability to ride out that volatility, but to understand their investment well enough to separate opportunity from trap. And I think that's really important because um, like 2020 was obviously anonymy, was obviously an anomaly. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, over the long term, um, very few stocks actually go up, like most stocks actually go down. So I think there was this uh, white paper by JP Morgan that revealed 40% um, 
of the companies in the Russell 3000. So that index tracks around 97% of all U.S. companies. So 40% of those actually um, suffered a catastrophic uh, stock price loss. So what this means was they went down 70% from all-time highs and they never recovered. So that was 40% of all the companies. Um, And around two-thirds of the time, if you concentrated in a single stock, you would have underperformed the stock market. So clearly, it's quite hard to predict where a company is going to be in five to 10 years. Um, if you look at you know, Amazon, for example, like people like to use the example that um, back in 2000, it went down like over 90%. And now it's obviously one of the most uh, powerful companies in the world. Um, I think Bezos recently uh, tweeted an article about uh, like a 1999 Barron's article um, titled Amazon.bomb that talked about the idea that Amazon was this, you know, like selling a dollar for 90 cents, that they didn't have a stable business model. Um, and, you know, at the time it seemed right because I think it topped at around like over $100 in 1999. And then it went down like 95% um, to around like $5 or something. Um, and I think at the time, you know, like a lot of people believed that eBay was actually going to be um, dominating the e-commerce landscape. So I think today, like Amazon's worth like um, 40 or something times more than eBay. So definitely, you know, like long-term investing is hard. Like how many shareholders predicted that all the way back from 1999, right? Like who would have predicted that um, Amazon would have been, you know, one of the most powerful companies in the world, they would have not only been successful in e-commerce, but they would have also launched, you know, AWS. Um, so I think, you know, like that all goes to say that even the best stocks go down at some point, right? Like you're never going to get a stock that goes up, up, up forever. However, you know, it's also important to remember that most stocks actually don't recover. So you got to pick the right ones and that's very hard. Um, so like even for something like Roku, for example, like I, I'm sure like a lot of you know Roku, um, so Roku, like it IPO'd like over four years ago, and it's been a very successful stock since then. You have handily beat the market if you had owned it since the IPO. However, you have uh, also had to endure around three 60% drawdowns, including the current one. So each of those drawdowns, you had people screaming at you that the story was broken, that, you know, like they were going to get crushed by Amazon or um, that they would have been, you know, like they were just a, uh, hardware that just they're just a stick um like not talking about you know the operating system the ad platform that would have been you know pretty hard to have uh held so you had to have conviction in your thesis you had to have done the research and you know even mega caps like facebook amazon like people were talking about how facebook was this um like super solid company that you could just um, head to the beach and you know like do nothing for 10 years and you have done fine you have beat the market but now look at what's happened. You know, like today it's down uh, 25%. And, you know, people are talking about how TikTok's going to crush them. People are going to talk about, you know, how um, IDFA and Apple really sort of screwed up the model. Um, so as a long-term investor, you have to wait that, you know, like I don't know if Facebook's um, going to recover, right? Like I think it's a quality company, but, um, you know, you have to figure out for yourself if this is a dip that's worth buying relative not only to just um, the quality company, but also relative to your opportunity costs. Like what other, like are there any better places for you to put your money today that will probably do better over the next, you know, five to 10 years. So I think um, it's important to, you know, like as a long-term investor, not just blindly buy and hold, but to uh, buy and then constantly reevaluate, constantly keep up with the company and to be able to separate signal from noise and to really, um, kind of understand what exactly would break your thesis and be able to uh, sort, sort of react quickly when that happens. Richard, this kind of takes me down the path of asking. Like, obviously, you know, the average investor, everyone knows that, like, you know, Fintwit is a different place. I said this. These are the people who want to work and get that extra alpha in there. But it sounds like, you know, hey, listen, you really should have those core broad-based indexes in your portfolio um, you know, most people should have that as their entire portfolio is the real thing and just dollar cost averaging that into that solely. But I want to kind of get your thought on that. Do you think um, that pretty much all portfolios, all long-term investing portfolios should have a base of those indexes and ETFs in there? 
Um, obviously yeah, the broad-based like, ones, not the, the you, you, it's good to have the, the sector-specific ones, but I'm definitely talking about the spies, the QQQs of the world. Yeah, I, I think it depends on the situation. I think, you know, like, um, most investors, like, when they start, maybe they should have, um, like, uh, like, like, put sort of a larger percentage of their portfolio in these indexes, um, just because, you know, I think most investors, they don't have... Um, the ability to beat the index. So if you're not willing to, you know, put down the work, um, do the research and, you know, constantly keep up with your companies, then it's probably better to just buy and hold an index. Um, but if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to, you know, like put in the effort and if you find that you're getting pretty good at it, then um, it makes sense to kind of um, hold a more concentrated portfolio of individual companies. Um, I think that works for me. It's because, if I were to hold like a portfolio of like 30 stocks, then I, w- I just wouldn't be able to keep up with all of them. Um, at that point, you know, it's just better for me to buy and hold an index. But I think, you know, I've gotten to the point where I'm pretty comfortable with my own investing abilities. So that's um, why I don't hold the index. But for new investors, for sure, you should consider it. How many stocks uh, do you own about? And like, where do you think your your maximum, you know, how many do you think you could, the most you could focus on at once really as a long-term investor and be able to be the expert on it like you have to be? Where do you think that number is and where do you kind of, where, how many stocks do you hold now? Um, so, you know, I think the maximum boundary would probably be around, you know, like 20. Um, but that would be, you know, like uh, probably like the upper level of my confidence. Um, I own around under 10 stocks right now. So just about 10. Um, and I feel like that is sort of the best area for me to be um, where I can, you know, be confident in, keeping up with my current companies and, you know, always be on the lookout for new ones to add, but I have to compare, you know, like whenever I come across a new idea, I have to compare it to kind of the weakest company in my own portfolio right now. So that's my opportunity cost, right? Definitely. So uh, you talked a little bit, I'll I'll let us move it on. I won't uh, keep harping on you and coming back to you. Uh, I'll let you breathe for a second, but definitely want to bring (laughs) you back in as we cycle around a little bit. Uh, but yeah, one of you, you said you had nine, ten stocks right now. Is there any one that you know maybe you're excited about buy more, rec- buy more soon, dollar cost averaging into, or, or anything like that? Yeah, is there is there one you maybe want to highlight and talk us through briefly? Yeah, um, so you know, like I think my top two positions right now are GoodRx and Carvana. So um, I think you know, like they are both pretty misunderstood companies, and I think that they both um, have sort of an unmatched value proposition for the consumer. Um, so in terms of GoodRx, you know, like why wouldn't you want to save, you know, like 80% off of your prescriptions? And I think GoodRx is able to have better prices than any other prescription discount um, app or platform because uh, they partner with multiple PBMs. So these are pharmacy benefit managers and they provide GoodRx prices and, you know, like no one else has that kind of marketplace. And so I think, you know, like they're seeing a lot of traction there and pretty excited about their opportunity in pharma ads as well. So pharma wants to, you know, advertise uh, these um, kind of coupons and these uh, uh, like um, sort of brands for their um, uh, like, like kind of these highly priced branded drugs and GoodRx is the best platform to reach the consumer because they have around, you know, like 6 million monthly active users. And so, you know, like I'm pretty excited about that. Like, I think it's um, a, a, great valuation um with carvana um it's uh all, like also like they compete in a, in the 800 billion dollar um used car market and i think they have a better value proposition both compared to how poor you know the traditional used car buying experience is as well as other online players that aren't necessarily vertically integrated and can offer um kind of the same prices and selection so they really compete in terms of um, three factors, which is price, convenience, um, as well as selection. And I think that they are much better than the competition and they continue to improve upon that. So um, I'm pretty excited about their prospects as well. Perfect. Thank you, Richard. That's GoodRx. GoodRx. I say it weirdly as I'm trying to come in here after. GDRx and then Carvana, CVNA. We'll uh, maybe dig a little bit more into those in the future. I know GoodRx is also a, a Brad name. Uh, thank you, Richard. Appreciate all that amazing insight. That was fantastic. Loved hearing it. Um, definitely a very, very knowledgeable guy. So anybody in the crowd, we have about 400 people right uh, here in here right now. Make sure you're following him. Everyone should be following Richard. Everyone should be following all of our speakers up here. 
big shout out to the Bullish Rippers account, which I'm on right now. We're trying to host some really top class and amazing spaces. And the people we have up here are the part of it. So make sure you're checking out those people. Thank you, Richard. Uh, definitely want you to hang out up here. We'll have time to come back to you, cycle through some general questions, uh, investing questions in general. But yeah, thank you, man, Richard. Yeah, thank thanks. you, man. And, and with that, I'm going to throw it over to Brad. Uh, yeah, if you wanted to go a little bit into your stock deep dive, anything else you wanted to add with the situation that's going uh, going on right now? Sure. Should I should I just go into Upstart, or maybe I could talk about Facebook earnings, or or, or what 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 do you think would be more interesting? Let's do let's do some surface level quickly on you know Facebook and PayPal are two names, these two companies that a lot of long term investors will be fans of, and they are huge companies and have gone destroyed in the last couple of days. Uh, Facebook down 25%, you know, that's trading like a penny stock when it's a, a trillion dollar company. So uh, I would love to maybe hear your, your quick thoughts on, on that area. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll throw in another question in there on top of it, a selfish question. I have a bunch of stocks, you own a bunch of stocks, and they all seem to report in the same week. So also maybe kind of on top of it, how do you deal with that a, a little bit? Well, yeah, we'll start out with the, uh, the Facebook PayPal. Earnings. Yeah. And just, uh, kind of reiterating the, the praise for Richard a little bit. He, he definitely was was part of, of helping me understand the immensely complicated pharmaceutical value chain for GoodRx. So so definitely an, an awesome resource and a good friend and and happy to have gotten to know him on Twitter. Um, but moving on to Facebook, uh, yeah, I, I've owned, so this is my longest tenured holding, I guess. Uh, so I've held I've held it since 2017, and since following the company, I I, I haven't seen an earnings report this bad. Uh, just to be candid and honest and, and open. Um, the, the actual demand, uh, metric, the, the top line revenue was, it was fine. Uh, normally we see a pretty nice top line beat. They had a small currency headwind that they should have been able to overcome that they really weren't, uh, weren't able to. So, um, sales pretty much in line and then, and then earnings, um, earnings well below, uh, expectations, which that's the first time in a very long time we, we've seen that for Facebook as well. Um, and just, just some of the reasons that, that were highlighted on the call, um, Dave, uh, or the, the CFO, the COO and, and Mark and, and, and the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, all three of them in the call multiple times mentioned, uh, more competition, uh, as, as, as one of the reasons for, for these lackluster results and the lackluster guide, really not something I want to hear. Um, but, uh, the, taking kind of the other side of that argument, uh, Facebook has been very much so in, in this monopoly, uh, or caught up in this, in, the, in this monopoly and, and, and FTC drama and, and so if, if they can kind of uh, massage the messaging to to make it seem like TikTok or or maybe even Tinder or Pinterest or, or sorry, Twitter or Pinterest. I'm sorry, my, my mind is on Tinder right now. I, I wonder why. But uh, but but essentially, <clears throat> yeah. it, it, it sounded like they were they were trying to kind of dissuade these these um, this idea that they're a monopoly and, and they aren't a monopoly. I mean, t t uh, TikTok got to a billion users in the blink of an eye. It's, it's hard to it's hard to, to call them a monopoly with with how. With how many uh, formidable competitors there are, but um, but they're they're very much so a duopoly and, and very powerful. But so so that that was that was one of the reasons. The other reasons they talked about is this transition of of content for for monet for monetizing. So um, they are so Reels is exploding on on Instagram and Facebook, um, and and and, a, and and that's great. It, it drives more traffic, but it's a much newer product, and it takes Facebook time to figure out how to most effectively monetize these products and these content forms. Um, in terms of better, more meaningful ads that don't piss us off or annoy us um, to get us to log off Facebook and, and go somewhere else. So they're, they're actively um, figuring this out, uh, toying, toying with new ideas and, and new, new processes, processes for monetizing um, all, all, of, all of the Reels content. Um, and, and just I, I want to give a quote from Sheryl Sandberg to, to kind of level set, um, to kind of level set expectations and, and very high expectations I have for them being able to pull this off. So uh, here's the quote. I want to emphasize that while we're going through a transition, we're optimistic. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Sheryl Sandberg is not normally a very optimistic person on these calls. Uh, we expect Reels monetization to improve over time and to close the gap. We've made successful transitions before, like from web to mobile and from feed to stories. We have a successful playbook here. So um, that is, is number two. And then number three, uh, we were told last quarter that, that iOS, IDFA, uh, privacy uh, policy changes and, and targeting headwinds were peaking um, in, in, in the last quarter. That that didn't really seem to come to fruition. Uh, they they leaned heavily on on, uh, for lack of a better term, the excuse that that Apple uh, is is really 
is still weighing on on both uh, their their conversions and, and the amount of data and impressions that they have access to, and also um, the fact that they're vastly underreporting web conversions to to their marketers. So, so they're they're not really um, selling themselves and selling their value proposition as effectively as they should be able to at this point. Uh, they're investing heavily in artificial intelligence and and data mining in their data science team to try and figure out how to sidestep uh, this this treasure chest of third party data that they no longer have as as easy and seamless access to. Um, but but they're still figuring it out. And and these three growing pains are are absolutely weighing. All, all three of them are absolutely weighing on the company right now. Um, and and we saw that with a with a Q two or Q one twenty twenty two revenue guide of a midpoint of twenty eight billion, and we were looking for thirty point three. Um, so an eight percent um, haircut, not not from Facebook, but from what analysts are expecting, is not is not something that we've been uh, that that we've been uh, brought to expect from a company like this. They are a beat and raise machine, and they generally are a beat and raise machine, and then tell us uh, how concerned they are about the future three months of the company, and then they beat and raise again, and tell us how worried they are again, and then then they beat and raise again. So we we we've gotten really used to that cycle, and and now it seems as though these headwinds that they've been warning us about are, are actually having a material impact on their business. Um, and, and so I was a buyer when, when, when Facebook was, was dropping from its all time highs to, to the low three hundreds, like, like it was over the last few weeks. But like Richard was talking about this idea that we have to continuously evaluate companies and, and how, and how deserving they are of our capital and our time and our very finite attention um, that, that we have to, to, to focus on these companies and, and this quarter didn't warrant, regardless of, of the 30% haircut that it's taking today, it doesn't warrant me accumulating more shares of the position. Um, I, I want to say I'm not selling any shares. Uh, I'm not interested in selling a single share. But uh, the, the, the broken stock and this, this, this large move, in my opinion, is somewhat warranted because there's a lot of questions about the future execution of Facebook or of Meta um, that I didn't have before this. So of, of like how 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 big of a piece of the, of the overall pie um, is, is TikTok going to be able to take away from Facebook? How much of that screen time per day are they actually going to be able to take away? And, and, and executives sounded very concerned that it was going to be a large chunk. And yeah, you can say they're just saying that because they don't want to be seen as monopoly by, by uh, Capitol Hill, but that remains to be seen. Um, again, another idea that, that Richard was talking about that I, that I deeply identify with uh, one bad quarter doesn't chase me out of a name. This this was certainly a bad quarter, but it, it hasn't been the theme of bad quarters for, for Facebook or for Meta. Sorry, that's going to take me a while. Um, but 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 yeah, uh, very underwhelming. Um, Long term thesis intact, a little bit more uncertain. And so really just sitting on my hands, sitting on the position, doing absolutely nothing right now um, and, and just kind of waiting for more information across the tape on on how the commerce rollouts going for, for shops, um, how how Oculus content sales are going. Um, but but these growth projects are still very, very small pieces of, of the overall advertising Facebook revenue pie. Um, and they're going to take a long time to become sizable pieces. So uh, this cash cow that is uh, ad impressions on Facebook and, and Instagram needs to last for a long time to support this massive spend and all these projects that they're focused on. Um, and I think it will be able to. Um, I'm somewhat confident that it will be able to, but I'm somewhat less confident than I was uh, 36 hours ago. So that's really where I'm at for Facebook. That was a great analysis there, honestly, man. Um, I'm kind of in a similar place right now. The largest business, this is an advertising business. When you look at the other similar companies in that market cap range, the, they have, you know, Amazon has its its delivery business, but they have AWS and cloud. And all, it's a similar theme for all the businesses at the top. Apple has its iPhone businesses, but they have services and everything else around it. Facebook had the ad business. And it, for a while, it was a cash cow. It was an amazing business and it still probably is but it's not what it was. And, and Brad, two comments that I want to get you. One's more of a comment and one's more of a question coming back at you. First of all, I find it funny now, uh, all this focus on the creator over the last couple of months from these platforms, Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, whatever, maybe it's years. Like, it feels like this is why. They, they kind of knew there was going to be some struggle to the direct advertising revenue, and they're looking for those other ways. And, and as this was coming down the pipeline, creators and investing in that was kind of the concept there that they're going for. So I just find that more funny now that we're at this point and kind of hearing all the information on the table. And then one thing I did want to ask you about, you mentioned calling it meta, which is very strange. And I kept saying, I'm not going to call this company anything but Facebook until they announce that ticker change, but they did. So I kind of want to ask you a little bit from your perspective at all, does a ticker actually matter at all? Or is it just kind of a, a nice marketing piece that's obviously good to have, but won't really mean anything? 
Yeah, definitely not uh, a pressing part of, of the bull thesis. And, and I think irrelevant would be a good way to describe it for 99 out of 100 of these. But uh, with all of this, uh, with, with all of this negative press that Facebook gets that, uh, I, I mean, you could theoretically, um, you could theoretically see them distancing themselves somewhat from this brand being a small positive for them. And I want to emphasize the word small in that sentence, because I don't think it's going to be a game changer or anything. Um, but but yeah, a lot of people don't have super positive feelings towards a lot of Facebook's practices. And I, I'm, I'm honestly one of those people um, for, for a few of the things that they do. Um, but but yeah, distancing themselves from from a brand that has been kind of known as the Death Star in, in social media for a long time uh, might be might be a positive for them, a small positive for them. Yeah, I overall agree with that. Won't be the biggest thing. I think it's much more of a of advertising people clicking into the meta ticker and the conversion over of people being able to be like, oh, this is Facebook or this is Meta or whatever with a meta ticker. I think will be a little more, but that's definitely much more ancillary. Uh, before we get into, I'm gonna come in one more question here, Brad, and then maybe we can go into the upstart uh, topics. And maybe with this, Richard, you want to come back in and answer after. Uh, you know, it is really important that one quarter is not the business. One quarter is not how everything's going. There's anomalies or everything like that. You have to be looking at the trend. And Richard, you even went back to say two, three quarters, which I, I definitely do agree with. But I kind of want to ask you guys, where do you start to get worried? Like, where's that point where, okay, it's a year now, it's four quarters or, or something like that. I know it's case by case and everything like that, but are there maybe any examples of you went from, uh, okay, this was just one quarter, whatever, or this was just two quarters. Uh, to a point where, okay, this is not something I want to be a part of. I don't like this trend. I don't like whatever. Uh, I need to need to make a move uh, with that. I would love to throw that over to you, Brad, if that was uh, a well enough worded question. <laughs> For sure. And then I'll, I'll toss it over to Richard because I'm sure he'll have some more interesting stuff uh, to talk about. And, and yeah, case by case is really, um, is really the, the best way to put this. So, um, I mean, two, three quarters in a row of consistent underperformance uh, probably will, will get me a lot closer to to exiting than one quarter of underperformance. But at the same time, um, that one quarter of underperformance, uh, that it, it's not binary uh, outperform or underperform. There, there are definitely very, very uh, specific degrees of underperformance. Uh, and, and, and if it's an aggressive enough degree of underperformance, one quarter can get me out, out of a company. And, and it's not just the headline numbers. It's how, it's how companies explain, um, it's how companies explain these headline numbers and, and the rationale they give behind the weakness um, and it's it's kind of putting my thinking cap on and 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 contemplating. Do I think this makes sense? Do do I think this is legitimate? Do I understand? Are there other co- competitors in the same space telling me similar things, or is this unique to the company? So um, may, maybe an example that, that I'll give super quick was Butterfly, uh, which was which I was very excited about early in 2021 and exited later in 2021 just because of how absolutely putrid their their last earnings re- report was like a, a 1600 basis point gross profit margin reduction guide down reduction or guide guidance reduction, um, a 29% revenue miss, and then telling us um, extremely contradictory rationale um, for, for why it happened, essentially saying they're, they're slowing growth is because we ramped up our enterprise sales team um, really fast, which they told us they were going to, which is why we were accepting these bloated net losses. And then, so now they hired all these enterprise sales members. So shouldn't they be in a position to grow even more quickly instead of less quickly, um, and, and apparently not. So um, to me, it, it's really uh, it's really how they explain it, um, and, and then it, it's really it's really the degree to which they they disappointed. It's got to be really bad. It's got to be butterfly bad. I'm sorry to pick on the company for me to get out after one quarter, but it is possible. Yeah, and for me, um, I definitely agree with a lot of what Brad said. I think you have to look at kind of the trends within the sector and. The reason why the company um, has underperformed, I think the company's management team, um, they're paid to be the company's uh, best cheerleaders. So I think, you know, like you should always take what they say with a grain of salt and kind of back it up with other data that you're also seeing. So, for example, you know, like, I guess um, with with uh, kind of GoodRx, you know, like over, you know, since the IPO, I think their quarters haven't exactly been, you know, like huge beads and raises. Um, but I think kind of this year is um, kind of the year where I think that they should perform. Otherwise, you know, like I think something's going to be, you know, like uh, wrong with the thesis and I should reconsider um, just because, you know, like I think they have been severely impacted by uh, kind of the drop in um, people, people going to uh, in-person uh, doctor's visits. And if you look at kind of the discount card competition, 
even though they're not public, you know, like we have heard that they're also facing, you know, similar headwinds and they're also slowing down. Actually, GoDirect is taking market share at the same time. So because they're going faster than their competitors. And so I think, you know, like uh, this year management has said that they should return to baseline in terms of um, the prescription volumes. So, um, or, or, or the number of people going back to uh, in-person doctor's visits. And I think that, um, you know, like we should see that kind of boost. So if, you know, like we're seeing things like uh, continued slowdown in their prescriptions business, or, you know, like they uh, kind, of, kind of like say like, um, or, or like give more excuses, like, you know, it's going to be next year that this happens, then that's going to definitely raise some question marks. And I think, you know, like these days on earnings calls, really uh, every company, when they miss, they're trying to blame it on things like supply chain. Um, with, with Roku, for example, like recently, um, they uh, talked about how supply chain was a big headwind to their um, players business and that was kind of understandable because you know like in terms of the entire industry you know i think you know tv prices went up around 40 percent, and this caused a major drop in tv sales and so roku actually outgrew the industry in terms of that regard and that was sort of understandable however you know going forward i'd like to see kind of how they're tracking against the industry and so um that's important to keep an eye on and i guess for matterport um, that was a company that really confused me when they talked about kind of uh, how supply chain was really impacting their um, lower guidance. And sort of that was kind of a red flag. I mean, like I didn't own the company at the time, but if I had owned it, then that would have been a red flag for me. You guys are sparking me too many good questions. The information is just rolling out there. So I guess we're going to keep rolling with it, Brad. I'll, I'll come back to you a second. I actually want you to answer this question. But Richard, uh, I would love to ask you, when you have a stock that you own, how deep do you dive into the competitor's uh, research report? So, you know, whatever the company is, the biggest competitor, are you kind of doing it as if you full on own that stock in close and you have to know everything about it? Or is it a little bit more lax, kind of knowing generally how the entire competitive landscape is going? Or, yeah, like how much are you digging into the, the top competitors uh, of the stocks that you like? Yeah, so um, if they're public, you know, like I think I will try to do as much research as possible um, before I invest. I think for a lot of my companies, um, especially since their earlier stage, uh, a lot of their competitors are private. Um, for, you know, like Roku, for example, like even though their main competitors are not private, um, Amazon doesn't exactly break out their Fire TV um, sales in their earnings reports. So I think, you know, like that's kind of harder to track. However, there are, you know, third party resources like um, Conviva that just released their um, state of streaming report that tells you. Um, kind of how market share is changing within viewing time. So I think, you know, like over this past quarter um, or uh, comparing like, you know, Q4 to like uh, Q4 2020 um, for Roku, they've actually gained a little market share in terms of viewing time and Amazon Fire TV has lost some. Um, however, other competitors like Samsung, LG TV and Android TV are all gaining market share at a faster pace than Roku is. And so um, even though they are, you know, coming from a smaller base, that is kind of concerning. So I think that's definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, I think, you know, like it, like, like when you're doing your initial analysis, you should consider a company's moat. And so I typically like to invest in companies that not only have a strong moat today, but they are growing their moat. So they have some kind of, you know, network effect or a kind of scale shared where they're continuing to improve the value proposition relative to competitors over time. So that gap should widen. They should continue to gain more market share. Um, and um, like, like you, you have like industries where there are like just huge tailwinds. Like I think the collaboration space is one of them. So like you see companies like Monday, Asana, they're all doing very well. However, you know, like I couldn't get comfortable with them because I didn't really understand the moat of Monday or like what really separates it. So I think for that one, you know, like once kind of the entire space slows down, I have questions about how much share that Monday is able to retain. And that's why, you know, like I wasn't able to invest in them. That was fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Brad, you, you have any thoughts on, on, the, on the question? I kind of want to throw a little bit of a side question in there as well. When you're looking at these competitors, is it harder to kind of find in like, a huge behemoth like Amazon, what the fire stick is doing in there? Or maybe is it a little bit harder when the company is private, when you have like very limited information about them? I wonder 
I would think that the private company would be a little bit harder to get their research on than the uh, the uh, hidden piece in the in the Amazon behemoth. But I don't know if you have any thoughts of that or have had any, any uh, firsthand case with that. Or yeah, yeah, they they both kind of present unique challenges. So Richard alluded to the the mega cap challenge of um, us of them not breaking out every single individual revenue line because there would be hundreds of revenue lines if they were doing that. So um, so sticking with Roku, I don't know a ton about. The, the company uh, firsthand, but I, but I think it's a it's a good example uh, with an Amazon or, or with 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 a Google and then their YouTube business. Um, it, it's really it's really tough to, to gauge uh, to gauge kind of competitive outperformance for for Roku versus one product within within a massive suite of, suite of products. Um, and then from from the other on, on the the opposite side of the spectrum for these tiny public private companies. Uh, sometimes we get press releases every now and then of, yeah, they did X amount of revenue in, in 2020, but there, we, we rarely have current information. Um, we can kind of connect some of the dots using, uh, using some traffic aggregators or maybe an app Annie to, to be looking at downloads or, or a similar web to be looking at web traffic um, to, kind of, to kind of piece together a, a few things. But it's, it, is, it is tough um, to, to, to paint a complete picture of, of true competitive risk from both um, a, a small private company, which which Richard and I, um, and kind of we're, we don't wanna, we don't have the same investment mentality, but we we have a very similar investment mentality, and we we generally invest in similar types of companies where where like he said the the competitors and the competitive landscape is still mainly private, um, so that makes it tough. Uh, but but yeah, to, to, answer, to answer your other question, um, I I want all the information that I could possibly have public access to, so. If there are, um, so, so for an upstart, for example, uh, so for a Pagaya, which is now going public via SPAC, um, th- that, that investor presentation, that, um, that, that SPAC investor presentation that, that I'm sure people are now rolling their eyes at every time they see, but, um, but, it, but it does serve as some good information. And then along, along those lines, upstart in 2021, just with these massive, unbelievable beaten raises on the top and bottom line, um, then I, then I would look at maybe a lending club to see, um, okay, how much of this is just uh, is really just the consumer being on fire and consumer lending being on fire and stimulus kind of eroding default rates, and how much of this is unique to Upstart. So seeing that um, that that the rates that that the actual the percentage of the raise that they've been making is is larger than than anyone else in the industry. That that relative outperformance, the key term is relative is something that I, I take very seriously. So, so those are the types of things that I'm looking for. Um, I'll never have a, a complete picture of, of the, the competitive landscape because half of it is private um, and, and I'm, I'm not an accredited investor. And even when I am, I'll, I'll struggle to get um, access to 90% plus of the public or private uh, market information that I want anyway. So, um, so yeah, I, I learn everything I can and I accept the fact that I can't know everything, um, but, but I'll, I'll try and get as close to that as I possibly can. Always digging for more information. Uh, I love it. I'm feeling the same way. It is important to be able to parse through that information. There is paralysis by overanalysis and getting all the thousands of different data points out there. But in general, having more information at your fingertips and being able to to, uh, look through it and and really gain opinions from it is only a good thing. So I do 100% agree there. I want to quickly reset uh, and just let you know, I've said this once or twice up here, but big shout out to Richard and Brad for coming in here and just being a wealth of information, making this space is so great so far. Make sure you're following both of them. Check them out. Click into their profiles. See what they're doing. Click that follow button. You will not regret it. Big shout out to my co-host, Wolf Financial, up here. He is putting on 20 spaces a week. It is ridiculous. We are super excited to be a part of it. Um, him and myself have been working together as hard as we can. He's bold, he's doing the bulk of the work on the, on the back end of it. I promise you he's the space is king. If you were enjoying this session, you will enjoy following Wolf Financial. And with that, we've kind of gotten a roundabout way to get right back to what we prepared for you, Brad. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on Upstart. Uh, if your mic does cut out during this, which we know tends to kind of happen during this, we will we will pivot necessary. Cool. And yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm going to try and maybe keep this under 15 minutes because I could talk about this company for for hours so um maybe 15 is a good a good max and More hopefully under. not bad so hey whatever we got we got okay all right so 
um, Upstart, uh, the loan augmenter for, for Legacy Bank. So I'm about to say a lot of really nice and exciting things about this company. Uh, keep in mind uh, a few things. Uh, it's, it's a high risk, high reward type play. A lot left for it to prove. Um, so far, so good, but long way to go. Um, it's only uh, 3 4% of my overall portfolio. So um, while I'm going to say a lot of really nice things, I, I still um, want to emphasize just position sizing is key because of the third thing of, of I could always be wrong about any company that I that I love and choose. So, so just keep those th three things in mind while I am about to say some really nice things about this, about this company. So what is Upstart doing? Um, so, th so they're really trying to fix the antiquated underwriting system in, in the United States first and then hopefully globally later. So what they're trying to address is the fact that there's 80% of Americans who have never defaulted on a loan and yet 40% of Americans who have access to prime credit. So the best offers that a bank or a credit union can give us. Um, Upstart likes to call this the hidden prime and that 32% of the American borrower cohort is that, that that that's its target market. That's really what it's going after at this point in time. Um, the problem with legacy underwriting before kind of going into upstarts fix. Uh, so it's so banks and credit unions, they don't they don't use only a FICO score, but they use generally eight to 30 variables in what's called a FICO plus model, where, where FICO really drives the bulk of the risk calculation. Um, and, and, and it's so it's it's solely using a, a three, not solely, but it's predominantly using a three digit credit score to arrive at an approved rejected decision. Um, this three-digit credit score is based on five weighted variables. 50% of the weighting comes from things like payment history and length of credit history um, that inherently discriminates against new immigrants and, and young borrowers. So, so we're left with a situation where essentially you have to be born into money um, to, to have early access to, to prime credit, which is, which is a, a phenomenally, phenomenally wonderful economic enabler for so many people. Um, and, and people without access to this, obviously, conversely, are precluded from a lot of these a lot of these uh, credit services that, that we need for economic mobility. So that's really where Upstart is trying to help. So um, the basics about Upstart, I'm going to go really quick here because otherwise I'm going to talk for an hour. Um, so they are not a bank. They're never going to be a bank. They don't want to be a bank. Um, they don't originate their loans. They, they use bank partners and, and investor investors in capital markets and institutions to fund these loans. Um, they, they, they don't target the, the four to five largest banks in the nation, but pretty much everyone else, um, because they're, they're really trying to, um, create an environment where they have this credit underwriting model where every, the, the, the extremely long tail of small banks and credit unions are all feeding their data into this credit model, along with the, the credit agency data that, that Upstart purchases to, to create, um, a more predictive sense of risk. Uh, the market, I'm going to skip this section because just keep it, the market's massive. It could get a lot more massive. If they successfully release products, that's a big if. Um, but but yeah, don't need to talk more about that. Um, the first, so so Upstart's product suite is is a string of of machine learning ML models. The first one um, is its credit underwriting model. Obviously, if you wanna if you wanna assess risk better, you you have to underwrite better. So what this does is correlate sixteen hundred variables on a borrower. This includes things like data on transactions, um, economic uh, macroeconomic signals, educational performance, um, a lot of things that that. Uh, in isolation aren't valuable at all, but but when when combined and turned into to new variables, so think of, I mean, every lender does this, think of debt to income and we create a debt to income ratio. Um, when you use this, when you do this with alternative variables like Upstart's doing, um, you can create unique insights that uplift and, and improve this, this underwriting process. So 1,600 variables, uh, you could question how important that 1,599th variable is. Um, you'd be correct. No, no important, ver no, no single variable is all that important in isolation. You can re remove any of them, including the FICRO score and have that same level of predictability. It's really all these working in tandem in real time with immense scalability. Um, that, that, that's what is pointing to, to this uplifted um, credit underwriting. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because I'm, I'm saying a lot of things about how good their credit underwriting is, and I'm not giving you um, any any numbers to support that. So I'm going to skip to value proposition so I can actually quantify that um, improvement because because we have a lot of third party data that that's supporting what I'm saying. Um, so from a consumer value proposition point of view, um, Upstart Upstart lowers uh, APRs for consumers by 16% while raising approvals by a four, full 27%. Um, this isn't from data sourced internally from Upstart. This is data from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, based on their own studies, their own um, their not this this is not upstart uh talking up its own book this is a a federal agency talking up upstart with no financial incentive to do so um uh, skip ahead again i, I want to say i'm gonna when i finish this uh, I, I have an upstart deep dive that's on my Substack. 
that's going to go way more into everything I'm talking about. So I'm skipping over a lot of stuff. But if you are interested in learning more, it's there and I'll link it to the top of the spaces when I finish talking. Uh, but partner value proposition. So what I have to talk about what what Upstart really is doing. They are they are sourcing uh, demand for loans on their on their site upstart.com and then they are redirecting these loans either to their loan funding programs through an originating conduit which is usually cross river bank sometimes finwise bank sometimes customers bank or they are they are sending these loans to a bank partner like apple bank um, who's actually retaining this loan on their balance sheet um, for for net interest income so partner value proposition uh, loans are loans uh, the loan business is, is extremely commoditized at this point in time i think that's that's very safe to say so what upstart needs to do is be able to create larger loan books for companies, um, create larger loan books for companies without without sacrificing loss ratios, without 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 uh, raising default rates or, or impairment rates uh, beyond a level that's palatable for these companies. So uh, we have more data supporting that that Upstart does just that. Um, it, its risk underwriting allows banks to juice their approvals by 2.7 percent without impacting loss rates. But the configurability of, of this risk underwriting um, algorithm is really what makes it so special. This 2.7x uh, juice to approvals is not the only option for banks. They can tweak uh, whatever they, they can tweak approval rates. They can tweak their loss rates to kind of set um, how big they want their upstart uh, loan book to be and, and how much and, and what they want the return metrics to be like. And this is the power of, of using of using so much uh, alternative data and and all the legacy data that they also have access to to create a more predictive sense of risk, which, which clearly they're doing uh, based on all this data that I'm talking about and, and based on uh, the, the next point that I'm going to make uh, from, from KBRA, the Crow Bond Rating Agency, um, and, and their capital market value proposition. So uh, upstarts, uh, Upstart leans heavily on capital market funding, and that, that's a product of, of its, really its philosophy for growth. So think about uh, going to a bank without any scale, without any data, without any proof and saying, yeah, we, we underwrite better than you do and, 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 and we're better than you. So um, I think you can imagine banks and credit unions would be pretty hesitant to kind of embrace um, machine learning and alternative data and, and all these new things um, in their credit underwriting process when they have a FICO plus model that's still churning out money and when there's really no proof supporting um, what this young technology company is, is saying um, to central banks and, and credit unions. So Instead of asking for for hope um, and, and for support and, and for a leap of faith, what Upstart did was really lean on capital markets to to fund all of these loans. So capital market participants, private equity firms, hedge funds, they have a unique ability to distribute and absorb risk that banks and credit unions simply cannot do uh, as as feasibly as seamlessly. Um, and, and they also they also are general generally less regulated and less conservative um, institutions. So Upstart. Upstart went went fully ahead with, with this plan of of leaning on Cross River Bank, which would which was its original conduit originating conduit partner, to source all of these loans, which it then bought back from Cross River Bank, which it then sold to Goldman Sachs and Jefferies uh, to be to be through through whole loan purchases. Sorry for the voice crack. To then be repackaged and tranched in, 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 into 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 tiers of risk uh, via pass through transactions or, or ABS transactions. Um, a lot of terms there. They're all defined in the deep dive. Uh, but but I, for, for sake of brevity, I don't want to go into every definition. Um, but for in terms of capital market value proposition, Upstart needs to uh, be creating what's called residual cash flows for the for the ultimate holders of these loans in order for capital market demand to churn. Um, so they need Cross River Bank to be making money. They need Jefferies and Goldman Sachs uh, for for sponsoring this and acting for for some of the trust duties. They need them to to profit from this. They need the investors in these and all of these loans to profit from upstart loans. And, and if and 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 in terms of and the, these profits have to eclipse uh, costs, input costs, obviously, or this capital market demand train that that upstart has really leaned heavily on. It'll it'll dry up or upstart's five percent take rate. Um, that's just dividing uh, platform and referral fees divided by its loan volume. It, it will go down because why? No, no one's doing this because they like Upstart or because they're friends with Dave Garrard. They're doing this because it's it's boosting their bottom line and 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 it's a good business decision. Um, and Kroll Bond Rating Agency uh, is a is a free credit reporting agency that I monitor very closely. Um, their last surveillance report uh, showed CNL so cumulative sorry cumulative net loss ratios um, outperforming outperforming actual law or outperforming projected projected losses and trigger rates by an even larger margin. Um, that's for every single one of uh, upstart securitizations, every single one of their pass through securities. Um, and, and we also have data during the pandemic 
about Upstart's spike in impairments being smaller than it was for, for pretty much every other loan competitor. And also their, their credit bands and or their risk tiers being far more predictive, far more predictive of default and, and true consumer risk than, than legacy credit bands. Um, they've also since had more people come out of what's called hardship programs, which is essentially forgiveness programs for, for loan payments. They've had more of their borrowers come out of those programs than, than the legacy consumer loan industry has as a whole as well. So a lot of outperformance amid COVID-19 just, just um, gave them a lot of a lot of proof points to to go to banks and, and say, hey, you don't need to you don't need to uh, trust us anymore. We have all this data to support uh, that, that we are we are doing a great job for our partners. Um, but but the key risk for Upstart is, is the fact that that 2020 and 2021 was an extremely unique period of time. Um, if you think about uh, all this liquidity sloshing around institutional balance sheets, making them pressuring them to want to put these deposits to work and look for things like unsecured personal loans, which Upstart is sourcing to to put these loans to work. Um, we also have things or to put their deposits to work. Sorry. We also have things like stimulus checks that, that we're going out constantly to American consumers. Upstart caters to, to, to lower credit or to, to non-traditionally credit worthy borrowers. So you can imagine they relied on these stimulus checks even more than some of the other lenders. So, of course, impairment rates and default rates were aided um, by 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 all of these, by, by all of these issues and, or by all these uh, features of, of the macroeconomic backdrop at that time. And based on this, we, we have data that's starting to show that their delinquency rates um, are starting to creep up. It's not, it hasn't been aggressive. It hasn't been a consistent theme, but it is, it has been a theme of, of rising delinquency rates in their most recent um, securitization transactions and pass-through transactions. Now we, we have to, we have to keep in mind, this is, this is a product of, of a few things. So first, is, is that changing macroeconomic backdrop. The CFO Sanjay Data has already explicitly told us they are expecting rising rates of, of, of defaults and they have priced that into their forward guidance. Um, they're expecting um, as the consumer normalizes for, for Upstart to return to, to default rates that are consistent, quote, consistent with pre-COVID levels. And that word consistent is extremely important to me because while Upstart was uh, outperforming on a relative basis pre-pandemic, if if they can get back to to just to just outperforming um, by by that margin when we get back to whatever the future macroeconomic backdrop is going to be in 2022 and beyond, they can continue to create these residual cash flows for all relevant parties. They can continue to grow their bank partner roster list, um, and they can continue to, to succeed. Um, now that and, and then the one of the other things that we have to keep in mind is that um, when, when partners when bank partners and credit union partners are are starting out with Upstart, they're generally doing so. With extremely uh, conservative risk parameters, they're they're doing so as kind of like like a, a run of trial and error to see what kind of impact it has on their net interest margin. So as as Upstart proves itself, and as they show more proof points, sorry, I said the word proof twice in a sentence. But as as they can continue showing more evidence that they're not just talking out of their ass, that they really do have this better means of quantifying risk. Um, bank partners have been lowering their parameters and their restrictions. Some of them have even dropped the minimum FICO requirements they've had in place for 50 years. And as a result, um, Upstart is now sourcing more and more loans that are not AAA rated or AA rated that are B or C rated. So, of course, default rates are going to go up when this happens. And these lenders and these holders of residual cash flows are compensated um, with, with higher with higher interest payments. That, that makes these rising default rates um, OK. Uh, so a few other things I want to cover. Um, is regulatory traction. So when when you're doing things like using alternative data and artificial intelligence and machine learning um, in, in the extremely regulated consumer lending space, that is inherently going to invite unwanted regulatory pressure. Um, encouragingly, and one of the reasons that I was so attracted to Upstart in the beginning is that they, they knew this. And, and, and at the very beginning of their journey in, in 2015, when they were originating the very first loan with solely using their own data, they were actively working with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, to work towards what's called a no action letter, which was finally issued in 2017. Now, what this no action letter um, guarantees is that the CFPB and, and associated federal agencies have no present intent to, to sue or, or, or bring enforcement action upon upstart pertaining to ECOA or the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Um, this letter expired in 2020 and was renewed um, again through 2023. No other, no other online digital fintech consumer lending company has this same no action letter. Um, and, and just some of the quotes that I have throughout this, throughout this deep dive just, just clearly and concretely paints how big of a piece of, of, that, of, of the puzzle that was to risk teams um, for, for banks signing on with Upstart. Uh, risks talked about macro risk pretty extensively. 
concentration risk uh, when you're leaning on loan funding programs to um, to to to, to shift loans to capital markets for funding, uh, there's going to be a lot of concentration risk, especially when Finwise Bank and, and Cross River Bank are doing all this themselves. So the, the vast majority of their origination volume is, is through these two partners. That That's not all that pressing of a concentration risk like we'd normally consider it to be just because there are a lot of CRBs out there. There are a lot of Finwise banks out there that can step in in, in these conduit roles, and that would happily do so if it was a good business business decision again. But the other the other prong of concentration risk is Credit Karma. So Upstart sources a lot of its upstart.com traffic from Credit Karma, or it, it had been in the past. Um, and then Credit Karma got purchased by Intuit. Um, they've been Intuit's been making some hires within the consumer personal loan space. That or consumer personal loan that was a little redundant. But anyway, um, it, that 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 kind of hint at their their ambition, their objective long term to maybe release some kind of product that that is more overlapping between Credit Karma and, and Upstart than than there currently is overlap. Um, now that that concentration risk from 2019 to 2020 rose from 38 to 52 percent. That was a product of, of Upstart and, and Credit Karma continuing to, to run their operations, continuing to lend to consumers throughout the entire pandemic. Um, and, and, and so you can imagine Upstart has 30 credit credit traffic partners. If 15 of them shut down and, and Credit Karma is still going full speed ahead, that will naturally lend itself to to raising concentration. And since it peaked at 52 percent in 2020, it's, it's since fallen back to the low 40s. Um, so, so good news there. Uh, the other thing, last thing I want to talk about, and I, this is there, there's so much more I want to talk about, but but I've been talking for so long. So I'm going to I'm going to uh, make this the, the uh, last point, I promise. Um, so why does uh, this point of of who is actually funding the loan matter? So why do I personally care if if capital markets are, are funding this and, and, and institutional investors are funding this or if retaining banks are? Um, and, and there's a few reasons. So first, banks and credit unions have access to lower cost of capital than do hedge funds um, trying to uh, to trying to gain funding for for these loan pools. Um, this this equates to passing some of those savings on. Uh, to, to upstarts consumers via lower APRs, lower annual percent rates. This fuels higher conversion. This fuels more growth. Um, and, and, and banks and credit unions also generally feature more consistent consumer loan demand across macroeconomic environments, which makes credit shocks a little less daunting. They'll still be daunting for upstart. They're, they're relying on capital markets, but um, banks and credit unions can fix that a little bit. Um, the other thing um, that I kind of alluded to earlier is, is that there's so many more pieces of the, of the value chain commanding a chunk of the profits when capital markets are utilized. So you've got the originating bank, the institutional investor in the whole loan purchases, the institutional sponsors, so Jefferies or, or, or Goldman Sachs, creating the tranches for, for future sales to other investors. Um, you've got the class A, B, and C investors in these pass-through and ABS transactions that all need to profit. And then the final residual um, holder of the cash, the final holder of the residual cash flows needs to profit. And then Opstart does. So, so I, I talked about how every single piece of the value chain needs to profit and needs to profit um, a, 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 with with effective levels in order for this demand chain to, to hum. And that's much harder when you're passing loans through capital markets than when a, a bank partner is retaining the loan and just they need to profit and upstart needs to profit. So we've got one, two, three, four, five third parties that must that must profit um, in order for upstarts demand to continue churning um, when, when it's passed through capital markets. And we've got one other third party that needs to profit when it's not. Um, yeah, I think I think I'll leave it there because that was 20 minutes and I, and I said 15 only. But uh, thank you for linking that that uh, that tweet to the top of the, the spaces. That is that is the upstart deep dive. That's what I've been citing throughout this entire talk. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the company, everything is there. Um, and, and, and I don't say that lightly. I worked my tush off on this one. So um, so. So, yeah, uh, give it a read if you're interested. And, and thank you for listening to my uh, to my lecture. <laughs> Your TED talk. Yeah, I'm on your clap. And that was great. As always, as I said earlier, more Brad is good. So we're super excited about that. Like as Brad said, if you want to check out more of his in-depth thoughts on Upstart, they are pink linked in the nest above. Wow, Jesus. That, that was that was an interesting one. But yeah, so here we are. We're, we're pretty much towards the end of this. I did have one or two more questions prepared, but we've gone for an hour. We got some really great topics in, some really great deep dives in, some great long-term investing talk in there. I want to head us around into wrap-ups. Uh, one more time, big shout out to Brad and Richard for coming on here and giving, giving us such great content and information. Make sure you're giving them both a follow. Big shout out to Wolf, the space is king. Check him out. Uh, but Wolf, I, I would love to throw it over to you if you had anything you wanted to comment and any thoughts or whatever in, in general. And then would love to hear 
about, you know, we do so many spaces together. There is no way any sane person could see 20 different spaces and know exactly when that we're gonna, they're going to be. Give us the information on, on the amazing free product that we made uh, to help people fix that. Well, first off, I just want to give a big shout out to the Bullet Strippers account. It's pretty cool to see everything that we're doing there. For anyone who's unfamiliar, Stock Market News, Evan is currently on the Bullet Strippers account. I also do multiple spaces a week from that account. I'll be live tomorrow at 12. Every Monday we do Power Hour. And then next Wednesday, I think we have a pretty cool industry-specific one. So if you like spaces, but also really good tweets, the Bullet Strippers account is a great account to be checking out. Evan's tweeting from there. We're both doing spaces from there. And we've loved to see the growth. If you haven't already checked it out, the pinned tweet of the Bullet Strippers account is a giveaway uh, that we're doing because we were able to hit 15K on there this uh this monday for power hour i'm pretty sure um so let's keep things rolling with that um as for long-term investing you know thank you richard thank you brad uh, it was great hearing from you uh first time hearing from richard for myself on spaces but i've seen your content on my timeline plenty so it was great to hear i really liked how you went into the thesis and moat um as well as kind of giving your timeline and you know what you're looking for from report to report was all really good stuff all around. So I loved it. I don't have too much else to add on the long-term investing. Besides that, I may do you know my best to scoop up some of these opportunities. Uh, there's you know companies like Facebook, which Brad just talked about, that are trading at certainly a discount to you know where they were just a few months ago. PayPal continuing to fall today. I think Shop as well sitting at eight nineteen now. So some really nice pricing um, just along here. So keeping my eye for opportunities. I think this space is a great one to not just hear about these opportunities, but also hear the deep dive behind them so that we can make the ultimate decision. To anybody that's in the crowd, uh, please, if you were intrigued by this, uh, definitely recommend checking out, of course, the speakers, but also going ahead and doing some research. Uh, if you wanna figure out how to do research, I recommend just clicking into Brad's write-up up top and following his process. You'll clearly see it laid out inside of the article, and then you can emulate that, take those same type of ideas and processes and bring them over to other areas of finance. But appreciate you running this seven. That's all for me. Oh, and then yes. Okay. The calendar, of course. Um, how can I forget? We have the single best tool on Twitter for finding finance related Twitter spaces. It's incredible. So if anybody clicks into my pinned tweet right now, you'll see we are indeed doing 20 spaces this week. No joke. Uh, five of them today, three tomorrow. We've already made our way through a dozen. How can people find all of our spaces? It is simple. We have one tool that you can use. And if you're not already on it, you need to join because over 3,000 people are using this every single day. And that is our Google Calendar. We built out a full-on Google Calendar that anyone can join. All you have to do to join it is DM myself right now or the other hosts up here, the Bullet Shippers account or Stock Market News. Just DM one of us and shoot us your Gmail. Preferably a Gmail. works with other emails, but it's a Google Calendar, so it's built for Gmail. We'll add you on. And what that'll do is you'll get an email within 24 hours that will let you add our calendar to your personal calendar. Don't worry about it clogging it up. You can toggle it on and off very easy. There's no problems with that. But basically, this will allow you to see when every single space is happening, who's speaking on them, the timing, the topic, all that type of stuff. And when the space is done, we'll grab the recording. You can see this is being recorded in the top left. And we'll put the recording in so you don't have to scroll through the timeline to try to find it. Again, 3,000 plus people using this on a daily basis, hedge managers, stock traders, CEOs, NFT people, crypto people, we do it all, whatever you need, you're in the right place. Even people who work at Twitter Spaces have DM'd us and asked to be on this. So with that being said, if you're not already on it, shoot me a DM right now and I will get you on it ASAP. I see some DMs coming in. Good stuff. All right, back to you, Evan. Perfect. Yeah, definitely. Actually, last thing. Make sure that you're following the Stock Market News account, the Wolf Account, Blow Strippers account, because once you see the event on your calendar and you come into Twitter, this will allow it to be at the top of your timeline. We always start ours on time. Always. On the dot. Appreciate that, Wolf. One of the best things that we've created. Make sure you're on it. Uh, make sure you're checking out all our speakers. Send myself or the Wolf account a DM to get on that. All right. Enough about that. I want to get us into wrap-ups. Richard, I'm going to throw it over to you first. Anything you want to leave us with, any comments in general. And I would definitely love to know more about how we can find more of the stuff you're doing. And is it just your timeline? Do you have any newsletters or, or anything you got coming up? Yeah, we'd love to hear anything we could do to uh, to support you and hear some really great information from you in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so definitely, you know, like if you want, follow my uh, Twitter feed. And I also have a sub stack. So um, I'm going to try and get more write-ups out. I haven't been able to uh, 
really have time for that recently, but um, definitely like to get them out this year. And um, I also, you know, work at Lizard Capital and Saga Partners. So um, if you want, check out um, those sites as well, link in my bio. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely happy to, you know, talk stocks if anyone has any questions about any of uh, my holdings and uh, ha like always happy to uh, hop on again in the future. Perfect. Definitely we'll be texting you back, DMing you back to get back on here. Super excited, some great information. Uh, definitely a great follow as well. And everything that he is doing is in his profile, the Substack, the companies he works for, uh, and hit that follow button. So definitely check out Richard. Thank you. Definitely we'll be circling him back in the near future to get you back on here. Um, yeah, thank you for coming on. And uh, I'll throw it over to Brad. Yeah, nothing, nothing more for me. Sorry for, for hogging a lot of the, the talking time. Just, just want to reiterate, um, Richard does really great work. Uh, Wolf, and, Wolf and Evan do really great work. Uh, so, um, so I think I just want to leave it there. You, you, you guys, um, you guys should, should say more nice things about yourself and, and less nice things about me. But, but thank you for, for having me. It's always fun. Um, and, and yeah, have a great night, everyone. It's a good relationship. We say nice things about each other because it's true. We, we come on and the truth of it is, Brad, we're just really glad that, that we can be like-minded people coming together, wanting to share good information and really some, some good long-term investing thoughts. So I, I definitely think it's a great relationship. Love having you on here. As always, Brad's a regular on this space. Every single Thursday at noon, we go for about an hour, hour and a half. Make sure you're following all the speakers up here. Big shout out to the Bullish Rippers account. Uh, myself, I, I'm Stock Market News Evan. Uh, so I am hosting from this account. Uh, if you know me from there, uh, I tweet from this account, as Wolf said. Uh, so we're doing a lot of big things over here. The next space from here will be tomorrow at noon. Uh, the next space in general, which if you're on the Google Spaces calendar, you already know, will be at 3 p.m. I'm fairly certain on that one. Uh, 3 p.m. today with Brian Shannon and Richard Moglin, hosted by Wolf Financial. And that will be an awesome space on technical analysis and, and markets and everything that's going on right now. Brian Shannon, the guy who invented VWAP. So if you're into trading, anything like that, uh, you will definitely be into that spaces. Make sure you're checking that out. And we have another space coming at 5.30 today, talking about investing in real estate with Invest with Lex. So definitely make sure you're on both of those. Uh, everyone, enjoy the rest of your trading day. Hopefully, Facebook and everything from my fellow Facebook shareholders. Uh, hopefully, it's up from here. But, uh, you know, we'll see on that. Everyone have a good one, uh, and thank you guys for joining in. Guys and girls. Take care.